0: Welcome to Park Media. I'm your host today, Vince Emanuele, and we're speaking with Rob Johnson, who's a friend, activist, union member, and a member of Organized and United Residents of Michigan City and Democratic Socialists of America. So yeah, so let's start with, let's talk about just where things were prior. I mean, it's not like the country was in great shape prior to the pandemic hitting. So why, no. don't, you, why don't you talk a little bit about just where we were at locally, the kind of conversations we were having in the kind of bigger political landscape that we were, you know, dealing with prior to the pandemic?
1: Right. Well, I mean, right before the pandemic, we were definitely all in for Bernie Sanders, um, trying to get phone banking or door knocking and stuff. Obviously it was cold. So it was mostly the the phone banking stuff. And already you were kind of seeing some of the, the problems that you'd have, right? Is like, there's a, there's a core group of sort of activist type people that's the same group coming out to get involved in the Bernie campaign and then very little growth outside of that. You know what I mean? Um, and so things were like, mean, we were working hard on it, but things just didn't look very good in terms of like the level of social mobilization that was going to go on. Um, people just seemed to not be reacting. And in the background, we've got rumbling like COVID's coming, COVID's coming. And the the trickle- out of like really bad information <laughs> on that where it's like one news report is this is no big deal, it's flu, the next one is apocalypse coming right
0: yeah um, so
1: were you involved no, for the 16 campaign? Good. No, I wasn't actually. I had been moving around still a lot, so I didn't really live anywhere. <laughs> no. right. so there was no group to get involved with. There wasn't like a I didn't had, had our revolution even started in 2016? I don't think so. Yeah. So there wasn't even like a national group to get involved with as sort of like an at-large basis. So I sent money and then hope for the best, which yeah. didn't come around.
0: Did, it seemed to me that in 2016, we had a lot of people, I mean, as you know, some of the people that we work with together in Michigan city are people that I met during the 2016 Bernie campaign. There mm-hmm. were a lot more people who came out for that campaign and volunteered. I remember telling you going to you know, recalling house parties that I went to in La Porte with like 150 people packed into like a suburban home, nothing of that scale in 2020. What do you attribute that to? Is it the larger democratic field or just because throughout that four year period, even though you weren't involved during the Bernie campaign, you've been very heavily involved since that time. Um, Mm -hmm. So I'm just kind of wondering what you saw leading up to the campaign, the kind of bigger picture stuff we were doing, or I'm sorry, bigger picture things you were seeing but also the things we were doing locally
1: Mm -hmm. i mean the the comparison i would draw is that and this is how i felt at the time is in 16 when bernie ran i mean we'd never seen anything i mean ross perot would be the last sort of like serious insurgent guy and he was running on a goofy party that like what's a reform party but in 16 it really did feel like a historic thing like oh my god this might actually be a change and uh i remember talking to you guys about the folks who turned out weren't in like political organizations. They were just people in society going, well, this has already b- always been terrible. And I assume there was no chance to do anything. Now this guy's here. He's actually on the stage. We got to support him. Um, by the time 20 came around, I mean, I talked to people who were supporters who were like, you know, he's not going to win. And I can't really disagree with that. Like the, the way 16 worked out, like they kind of tipped their hand and like really did a lot of shady stuff. Now he wouldn't have won anyway. But if your opponent shows that they've got the, you know, the game board rigged, it's really hard to convince people to play the game. Um, And I don't think that's, um, I don't think that's irrational. It's kind of like what you read from like the failure of Corbin is like a lot of those red wall voters liked his um, policies that he was laying out. They just went, well, you aren't going to do that. And it's not dishonest. If you look at the balance of sort of social organization and who's got power and who's got yeah, organization, they're not wrong to go, yeah, there's not going to be some big working class uprising that changes the nature of society right now. So I think people look around and go like, I don't think so, man, <laughs> you know? Right. That's that's kind of how I see it. And yeah, I, don't, I like I said, I don't think it's unreasonable. We wish it were different, but...
0: So, so some people might hear that and they might go, okay, so you had a really good analysis of what was going to happen in 16, and if you knew that it was going to be rigged in 2020 why in the hell even bother working on the campaign?
1: I mean, I didn't think it was impossible. This is all looking backwards, right? Like you have these conversations and you hope you can convince people differently, especially there was that moment right after sort of Iowa, Nevada, right? Where everybody kind of swelled up for a moment and then South Carolina just whack. Plus what other chance were you going to have to do like a national conversation about left politics or, Workers' rights or anything else. Like you can either let that pass and just go. Well, he's not going to win, so what? Avoid the main thing everybody's talking about. Don't yeah. <laughs> go talking to thousands of other normal people about these issues, or you can try. Um, I don't think it's it was a bad idea to work on that campaign, even if all it was was like a, a an educational campaign. Right. I still think it was worth doing.
0: Right. Give us a sense of. The kind of things RMC was working on prior to that. I didn't want to start really in a linear way and just like go all the way back. And I know we only have so much time, but I wanted to give folks an idea that we weren't just a group of individuals here in Michigan City, Indiana that decided no. to help out on this campaign. So why don't you give, give us a little kind of background on, you know, RMC, what it is, what we've been hoping to achieve here in Michigan City and in Northwest Indiana.
1: Yeah, so RMC started, like I think you mentioned, this group of sort of mostly ex Bernie supporters in 16. Well, no, I guess it would have been really 17 after the inauguration. Um, And we all knew that we supported this group of this set of politics, but I don't think we assumed that Bernie would really run again. So we went, well, we're going to actually have to make change here. There's no help coming from the federal level, there's no help coming from the state level. We're going to have to actually get some stuff done. And um, for three, four years, we did a certain amount of, I'd say, like community organizing type work. And we've tried various things. We've done sort of single issue campaigns, which we actually did have some success with. We've tried direct services. Do um, you want me to go like historically, like one by one, or just? Oh, yeah. Sort no, no,
0: no. You don't have to get too detailed, but just like an mm-hmm. overview of what we've tried, what we were thinking at the time, why we were trying it.
1: Sure. So we definitely had the idea that going off of Bernie's victory, like, well, not victory. <laughs> Bernie's way over performance in 16 over what would have seemed reasonable that actually these opinions aren't that uncommon. People look around and go, no, I mean, working people are getting screwed. They're not quiescently just going, well, this is the divine order, right? Um, So if we just go and engage people on issues that they care about that seem winnable here in our city, we can start to build up sort of that expectation that you can win. We can start to build up connections um, because, You know, right now, people just aren't engaged with each other. You might live next to people you don't know, let alone know their politics. Um, And so we ran a number of um, single-issue campaigns that we thought had sort of popular appeal and mostly won them. I got to give us some credit there, whether it was Bismarck Hill or this plaza thing or the uh, the FOP trying to buy public property for pennies. They actually were wins. Um, I think by the end, though, we kind of saw that it was still mobilizing a certain set of people that were sharing our politics and willing to speak out, but it wasn't adding as much as we wanted. And Bernie is another test of that kind of show that new people weren't coming in the door that much. So I definitely think we were reconsidering some of these approaches, even as then (laughs) Bernie lost, COVID hit, all this
0: stuff. Right. For sure. No, let's, let's, the last thing I want you to touch on with RMC is, the need for building institutions. Now RMC as we've talked about might not have the form of RMC might not be the form in which all of these, you know, institutions should be built. We agree that unions should probably be rebuilt some form of a party or whatever and we'll get we'll get to that uh, later in the conversation. But if you would touch on the sort of importance of building an actual institution and not just having like a loosely affiliated group of people who kind of agree with each other kind of coming together around a, you know, a loose set of values or a vision?
1: Yeah, I don't think there's anything more important. I mean, like I said, with my own involvement with, um, or lack of involvement in Bernie 16 is like, what would I have gotten involved with? So even if everybody shares your ideas, and there's nowhere to go, if it's a small group of people that know each other, but there's no sign on a board that lasts longer than six months? Where is somebody who gets the feeling, hey, I wanna change things, even supposed to engage? And then beyond that, and I think probably even more importantly is a sense of institutional memory of what works, what doesn't, what's been tried. Um, From being in Northwest Indiana, well back for four years or so, um, it's been, I don't wanna say depressing, but it's disappointing to see the same sort of efforts go through the exact same cycle over and over and over again where I mean, we had some of these ideas when we started, like, well, maybe if we engage with direct services, that's a way to get to know people, and then you can run campaigns with those people you get to know. And what we found out is people who are seeking direct services are just desperately trying to get what they need to survive to the next day. And that's a really good thing to do, but if you're looking to build up long-term connections and power, it doesn't work out. People with their hair on fire are not thinking about the next step, and that's not a moral failure. That's totally rational. Um so if if everybody who gets started again tries these same first steps repeatedly, 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 it's the same. You never get to build up sort of your experience and build up your toolbox. You start from step zero every time over and over. I know you and I have talked about that. There's like people who read a lot of history. You had this new left wave in 68 and it feels like what you have to engage with with it is just sort of history books. A lot of the institutions that started there that you could have learned from, they tried a lot of these same things, a lot of the history they made and learned from, you have to start from scratch again, <laughs> like coming up in the early thousands. And it, it just feels like, um, yeah, I don't, I don't have a better metaphor. It's like, everybody starts from the bottom of the ladder. Like, wouldn't it be great if we could build up and like learn, because political projects don't happen in six months, they're decades long. Yeah. So if every two years you start from zero, you're just completely throttled on what you can do.
0: No, that's a great point. And connecting to that, before we move to to what the context has been since COVID, um, how about how would you describe? Because people have heard me describe the political landscape of the region. Why don't you kind of give an overview for folks, and, and then we'll we'll jump into since COVID started. But how would you describe the political? social situation in a place like Northwest Indiana to someone who's never been here and who's listening to this thinking, okay, it's a small town. It's kind of close to Chicago. It's located in Indiana. How would you describe the, uh, the situation?
1: It sounds uh, dramatic, but for the most part, there isn't much of a political social situation. Um, it's sort of like there's some leftovers of things from 40 years ago. So like here I'm going to just do LaPorte County cause that's what I know better. Yeah. Um, we have a democratic party. The median age is uh, what would you say over 60? Yeah. Like it's, it's really older people they're retired. So they're not connected to any sort of like unions or anything else. Uh, the unions are out there, but they haven't done much other than just sort of some get out the vote and probably with minorities of their members for decades. Um, population has shrunk. So like a lot of people have left people who are here are often very transient. They're in looking for a job they're out. Um, and so there really isn't much politics. Voting rates are really low. Um, most campaigns, like if you go to like city council and stuff are barely contested or they're contested between sort of just like people who've been feuding since high school or (laughs) stuff. It's, it's really, I don't know of a way to say it's just really deteriorated and there's not really any, except for RMC and some other like groups popping up, there's not really any counter to that. It's just this kind of slowly approaching zero (laughs) level of sort of like social organization and um, political organization. And um, that's connected to the fact that economically that's mostly what this area is doing. Um, So we've still got the mill sort of anchoring the economy around here, but uh, not so much outsourcing, but uh, automation has completely gutted how many people those absorb. So like, I think the last that I saw as Gary works is up around 90% in terms of its production, but back in the fifties, it hired tens of thousands of people. And by now it hires a few thousand people. Right. So it's just not organizing life anymore. And what's filled the gap is sort of service sector, low wage, fast food jobs and the like, or unemployment. And that's why you've seen the city shrink so much. So it's, it's, um, it's pretty grim. Is there anything I didn't didn't cover
0: there? No. I mean, the only two things I would have mentioned that would only add to the the grim nature of the context in which we work is one is the racial situation throughout the region. In other words, we have yeah. these sort of white suburban enclaves surrounded by or butted up against uh urban environments that as you as you mentioned, you know, have seen a ton of flight of people, uh, deteriorated economy. But so in other words, like a town like Chesterton, for those listening, might be a town with like a I don't know what the median income is there. It's not too high, but it's a decent, you know, working class, middle-class town with some rich neighborhoods, 92% white. And it's like a 12 right. minute drive away from Gary, Indiana, uh, you know, median income, one fifth of what it is in Chesterton houses falling apart and and all of that. So the the racial component and the other thing I would mention is just the uh, tremendous environmental devastation that's happened in the region. So because of oh, from yeah. stretching from East Chicago and Hammond and Whiting, uh, you know, former lead plants. And now they're refining tar sands from Alberta, Canada, all the way to the steel mills and the coal fired power plants.
1: Right. And this has got the same sort of like, um, I don't know, race to the bottom dynamic of like a New Jersey, New York, but worse, like this is where you move all the stuff that Chicago doesn't want within its city limits. So like, I'm sure your family, like coming from iron and steel workers know that like all the mills that used to be around Lake Calumet in Illinois shipped over here. <laughs> like, people didn't actually want them in their backyard. And that's still going on, where, like, if you drive down 94 from Illinois to uh, Indiana, you see, like, come to Indiana, the state that works, right? They're basically saying, don't worry, we don't enforce our environmental regulations. Move your axle foundry here. right?" Um, and it's, so it's negative for everybody. Like, we don't have the sort of bargaining position that, um, like, as workers, our state guts labor protections were right to work. They got our environmental protections. Meanwhile, Illinois, if it tries to bid up like the conditions there, they face capital flight to Indiana and Wisconsin who both play this like really, really (laughs) wicked game. Um, And both of us have these state governments, Wisconsin's getting better, but um, that are controlled by sort of rural uh, reactionary Republican uh, cliques. So it's 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 really a nasty situation in terms of like macroeconomics.
0: Yeah, and and it's played out in a nasty way because of that lack of political cooperation and the sort of race-to-the-bottom terrible Mm -hmm. competition that we have. And when COVID hit, I sort of knew that Chicago was going to be fucked, much like the gun situation. I mean, it's the same thing when people around the country say, like, why are there so many guns coming into Chicago? Well, Chicago and Illinois are surrounded by states where you can buy a gun like you can buy a candy bar. Same with, say, COVID, where I I thought to myself, okay, Illinois, third largest uh, city in the country, Chicago, run by liberal Democrats, state is controlled by a liberal. They'll try and do as much as they can to contain COVID, but surrounded by Indiana, Missouri, Kentucky, uh, so on and so forth, Iowa, Wisconsin, they're going to be screwed. So Mm -hmm. that's just an aside point. But let's talk about what's happened since COVID. So tell people... A little bit about your own job. You work for Amtrak, you're a union member. So we could start out at the small level. Like what has it been like for you as a worker? Uh, And then we'll sort of expand it out. You know, what have we seen since COVID has hit?
1: Right. So this is interesting, even given the sort of Illinois stuff, like you're saying. So like Amtrak is in Chicago, that's where I go to work, which the state has taken things seriously. But that doesn't mean the company's taken things seriously. And that's who actually kind of decides how I work. So when this started, um, there was no attempt to slow down interstate rail, even when Seattle, I remember it's like, it's hard to remember back that far. Remember when Seattle was where it was really bad and there was all these horror stories and like comparisons to Lombardy and all this terrible stuff. Uh, we were still running, uh, trains with 400 or so people in it with air recirculation from Seattle to Chicago every day. So you would take 400 people from Seattle, box them in, lock them in for three days and ship them to Chicago. And Illinois might've been taking that seriously, but that doesn't mean these big corporate entities were. And of course, Amtrak's controlled by the federal government, the president's appointed by the US president. So it's a Trump appointee, nothing changes. At the same time, they were telling us uh, our frontline employees, like don't wear a mask, it changes, it uh, scares the customers. (laughs) So while, States are starting to take this seriously workers are being told something completely different by their employers. Um, and then once things start to crank down in Illinois, um, you still get this really unequal response. So like the commuter trains are controlled by the States. They start chopping down their frequency, start instigating all these uh, requirements. The national trains are still run by the federal. They're still running. (laughs) Um, And you get this like really weird, uneven response, where like people like I'm coming from Indiana, where the state isn't reacting, isn't locking things down. I'm going to the grocery store and having people cough right in my face. Then I get in a car, drive to Chicago, and interact with people who that isn't the situation. So the ability to control it was just non-existent. It was wild. Similarly, I was working from Chicago to Minnesota. In Minnesota, they defined seventy-eight percent of their workforce—I think was the recent statistic we saw—as essential. So, like even states that were controlled by liberals or tried to like uh, tighten this stuff down, some of it is for show. You know, yeah. Indiana—we definitely saw this, and they were proud of it. Like, um, you know, everything and anything was essential. But even Minnesota, you went up there, and everybody was still working. They never really went through the pain of a shutdown. They said they did, but they didn't. Right. Um, and so it's been, it's really wild. Now there's finally like strict enforcement, but there's no passengers left. So like now we're dealing with a sort of like a rolling furlough situation. How I mean, long
0: How long has that been going on? How many guys do you, do you know? Oh, furloughed? They've been talking
1: about it in like a disorganized way all year. They finally furloughed 2,500 employees, which I don't remember. I think it's out of like... I don't remember the number of employees we have total. Yeah, um, They're talking about a second round early in the year because our um, our ridership's down to nothing. I mean, a train that used to carry 400 people, like I'm on a rush hour train now, now carries maybe 20. Wow. We've broken three digits maybe one time, and I got to feel, like, nervous. Like, when we start doing well, it's like, I don't really, I, you know, I want everybody to keep working, but I also don't want people to be getting into trains with each other so it's but amtrak's often like greyhound transportation of last resort sometimes these are people who have to get where they're going don't own a car and so it's it's a nasty situation where people are just held to the economic situation work isn't giving them the chance to stop doing what they're doing and so you just kind of you do your best to protect yourself and you get what you get get what you get you know Yeah.
0: yeah i was gonna ask sort of what you've been hearing from people, then we can draw it out to the bigger picture, you know, what the political landscape has looked like since COVID hit, but what has your union been doing and what is the sort of talk in the shop floor? Like, what are you hearing from workers there?
1: The union's been trying to protect our jobs. In terms of COVID, there has been nothing. Uh, I haven't gotten any communication. It's not like there was education on how to keep yourself safe. The only thing has been to try to, contain as much of the damage and mostly that in terms of that's done in terms of like trying to make the process more rational. Like they don't really have a chip to say, Hey, we're carrying 10% of the passengers we used to, but keep hundred percent of the workforce going. But there hasn't been like any leadership on safety or any attempt to push back against the company on safety that I've seen. Um, in terms of coworkers, the things that I'm hearing recently, because I've got, um, uh, three coworkers were out recently. I mean, it's been dozens like since this year started um, go out with COVID. And uh, the way it starts to feel, what I've heard is like, well, we're all going to get it, which then plays into sort of like, well, why are we seeing people still partying and all kinds of stuff? Because the assumption is we're all going to get it. Yeah. If you work with the public and all you have is a paper mask that maybe the person you're going to deal with will actually put theirs on, yeah. it's kind of easier to just take the fatalistic approach, right? Like, we're going to get it. But then... The coworkers I've had get sick are—it's horrifying, and some of them are not old. I mean, they're out for weeks. There's like, fr- I don't want to like put people's stuff out, but like yeah. frightening, frightening symptoms, and you get like these half stories. We think they're out, and uh, we think they're sick. We've—I've heard this, and then you don't see them again. And with the bumping around in the furloughs, you lose track of people. It's um, it's been yeah, grim comes up again. It's been a—I said going to work feels like going to a hospice most of the time anymore.
0: And you're not alone there. I mean, I'm. you know how many workers are going through this and uh, of course this, the horror stories we've heard from uh, you know, nurses, ICU doctors and all the rest. So give us a sense COVID hits it's uh, February 29th. We're holding a killer wedding party at park. It's the South Carolina primary. Last time we had a party here at park um, we're drunk, having a good time. I momentarily checked my phone at midnight, realized the election's over with. Pretty much hung it up. Although I tried to go soft on my friends who wanted to carry through Super Tuesday. Um, it, it was yeah, bad news. Bernie loses. COVID hits. RMC jumps into doing as much mutual aid work as we could. Um, mm-hmm. Do you want to talk a little bit about that, and then kind of the what politics for us uh, who've tried our best to get people out of their houses, away from their couches, away from their TVs, in a place to actually talk with each other face-to-face and, you know, get to know each other and, and, and do politics in the way that we think it needs to be done, which is, you know, face-to-face in, in the company of other people. What has politics looked like over the last nine months? How do you sort of process what's happened over the last nine months, bigger picture now, um, but then also, you know, the things we've been trying within that bigger picture?
1: so going back to the the mutual aid and sort of immediate responses and 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 the bernie loss because i think they all kind of show the same thing Um, i remember you and i had a conversation early after bernie announced which was late in the primary right Mm -hmm. um we were looking at all the people starting to spool up their operations with bernie announcing and we're like we're going to figure out whether this sort of like activist very online layer of sort of professional class people can win a presidential primary because that's who we saw spooling up to do it. The unions were playing the same kind of 16, very, the membership may like him, but we're not going to get involved in it. You know, it that was what the balance of forces we saw shaping up. And uh, after South Carolina, and then definitely Super Tuesday, we're like, well, no, <laughs> like it's uh, too geographically limited. It doesn't have enough ties to working class people. Even in places like Iowa, where you poured in all these volunteers, the like volunteer to vote ratio looked, screwy because like sending people on a bus from illinois to iowa you're not from cedar rapids or whatever you don't know these people you know people here you don't have social like um trust and i mean that's what we've seen with covid right is like there's a real lack of social trust even if something goes out people don't necessarily take it to heart so we saw the same thing kind of shape out with mutual aid and sort of the covid politics we tried to do so we fired up two things right away which was um We knew people were going to be out of work and we wanted to make sure there was sort of a adequate service provision. That isn't how we thought about at the time, but that's what it ended up being is like, well, there's food pantries. What there aren't is like diaper pantries or like, you know, uh, pads for women or stuff like these might not be available. They're essential. We want to make sure they get shared around. And the same thing, we're going to talk about like the political situation while we're doing this. So we tried a number of times to pressure the city government to take, I mean, any, any steps early on. And we see now, boy, wouldn't it have been a great if Indiana or Michigan City had taken sort of preventative steps at the beginning now that it's absolutely wild. And we found the same sort of thing. The people who engaged with this were that same sort of activist, mostly sort of college educated part of society that just didn't have enough muscle to like push anything Um, people who are running around trying to like find out where their unemployment check is and where am I going to get food aren't engaging with politics that much. And even when they did, even when the city got lots of emails or phone calls or whatever, they themselves are no longer the type of leaders who know what to do. They themselves don't represent social formations or, or like a social organization that could get this stuff done. They don't even know (laughs) what they're talking about a lot of the time. So, like, pushing the city to react, you just kind of got, like, confused discussions, and it just
0: faded away. Um,
1: so, that, I mean, what was your you, – you wanted to go on to, like, sort of bigger – Yeah, yeah, just so. I wanted
0: to give folks an idea of how we responded as an organization. Like, you know, most organizations that did exist prior, of course, had to, when it hit, be like, okay, shit, what are we going to do? Um, yeah. But I also wanted you to talk about just the bigger political landscape since covid uh, leading up to the election, what you made of the election, and then sort of going through the election. I mean, of course, you're welcome to mention anything else that comes to mind in terms of RMC and and our engagement with the, uh, you know, with the during the pandemic. But I am interested in what you made of the, you know, presidential election taking place in circumstances that we had never really seen before, which was, and, and you brought up this point, something I wanted you to touch on, Um, and it was from an interview between Sam Riddle and Michael Moore, and Sam Riddle during this interview had mentioned that there really wasn't much of a ground game in Michigan and that the Democrats were relying on this digital platform uh, to try and get the vote out. And I remember us having a conversation immediately after I listened to that, and you were like, I don't think that's going to work too well for the Democrats. And it, and it, it did not work well for the Democrats. They barely squeaked out another election. Yes, Joe Biden did good with the popular vote, but you know, he barely won in some of these states. So no, I'm
1: I'm gonna be kind of like a broken record. So like we're seeing the same sort of thing play out where the this is all played for and by like the professional class, college educated
0: layer. Why don't and you, then after that me, it gets wild. Let me stop so, you there because there yeah. uh, we talk about it, and I'm sure there's people who are gonna listen to this who are gonna hear it and go, I know, I know exactly what they're talking about. Why don't you define what you mean by that? And I don't mean to like give us sure. like a textbook sure, definition, sure. but like, what do you mean when you're talking about these professional class people who dominate these p- political? So states?
1: when we started doing our early power mapping in Michigan City, like going like what institutions run thing, what individuals run thing, things, um, we immediately came up with like a pretty clear answer, and we started calling it jokingly the ten percent. Of uh, people who sit on bank boards, who have serious in, like uh, nonprofit organization jobs, who work for the major corporations at like the management level, who um, you know government workers, it's this set of people who have at least a bachelor's degree, probably even a master's degree, who are online, who are having these conversations, reading The Atlantic, reading The New York Times. Um, and they sit on everything. They're, uh, you know, the redevelopment board's got people from NipSCO. NipSCO's got investment from Horizon Bank, and Horizon Bank sits on the redevelopment board too. And the, that sort of like upper crust of management, workers, and everything—they're they're the ones that all the parties are pitching to for the most part. They're having debates that only people who are in those circles show up to. There's not like, I remember we went to a um, uh, like a a voter registration drive early in '18. And everybody in the room was like the same people we saw from the the debate, the same people from the redevelopment board. And they were going to go out and try to register voters in a poorer neighborhood by just like knocking on the door and then walking away after 10 seconds. Yeah. They did that one time. And that was the attempt at like voter registration for 18. Gee, I wonder why it didn't go that well. <laughs> it's It's not even pretending to engage with the average person in America who is not living in that world. They're working at like a warehouse or a fast food restaurant or anything else. May or may not have gone to college, probably isn't following the Twitter feeds you're following, isn't reading the Atlantic. And so all of this is happening over here and nothing's really engaging with everyday people. And um, that's what I would refer to as sort of like this professional class bias. And it's just closed in a bubble. I, I agreed with a riddle on Michael Moore's interview entirely where he called it, what was it? Like the roll up your windows campaign. Like the Democrats did not want to go to poor neighborhoods and black neighborhoods and talk to everyday people, even in Detroit. And he was talking about um, how that's showing that even though the Democrats might be picking up sort of white suburban educated voters who used to vote Republican because it benefited their 401k. Now they're looking at Trump and going, well, this actually isn't that good for investment either. This is unstable. It makes me nervous. You're picking them up, but these old urban centers with, you know, industrial workers or service sector workers that you basically just count on. You go, we got them. The the number of votes there is falling. They might overwhelmingly go Democrat, but it used to be 10,000 votes. The next time it's 2,000 votes, even if it's still 98% blue. So
0: you're just not engaging people. Yeah, and the people who are flipping in these suburban counties, it might not even be so much that they're taking such a sophisticated economic view of what's happening. They might see themselves as being economically comfortable enough to vote for Joe Biden because they feel culturally uh, right. offended by Trump's behaviors and posture and so forth. And then the thing that I think you and I, and this is going to get right to the core of what we need to talk about this cycle, the, 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 the troubling dynamic of this cycle is that year after year, cycle after cycle, we see less and less poor working class people engaged with the electoral process. Yeah. You might argue just politics generally, but at least we'll just stick to this electorally less and less poor working class people involved with electoral politics. Why? Because electoral politics is now solely the sort of creation and formation of suburban upper middle-class professionals. Um, what do you think the step is electorally? I mean, we know Joe Biden, I think we all agree Joe Biden is the president elect. We're not going to see much of a fuss from Trump. Um, He's going to take you don't office. do think the
1: twenty five hundred uh, AR fifteen people are going to overthrow the U.S. government yeah. <laughs> and institute some sort of like white Sharia law.
0: Oh God! The uh, no, the um, no. It made, it made me want to say something else, but I won't. The um, tr- Biden's in the White House. We don't know who's going to control the Senate. The Democrats are going to control the House. In a place like mm-hmm. Indiana. A uh, trifecta: dem, uh, Republican control in the House, Senate with majority. Yeah. I think they might have super majorities in both, and then Deeper also red than ever. Yeah. yeah, super majorities in both the House and Senate. Also at the state level, we've got a uh, Republican governor, and we have two Republican senators. So there's people. After the Bernie experiment, there was a. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. I think on behalf of the Jacobin, Jacobin crowd and, and others on the sort of Democratic-Socialist left, there was an idea that if we could squeak Bernie in there, then there's really an opening for us trying to take over that party uh, in, sure. in a, whatever way that looks like. Now the situation's much different. We're stuck with a terrible candidate. That candidate barely got over the finish line with less and less poor working class people voting for him, with the Republicans gaining ground even in black and brown communities to some extent. Um, what do you make of the sort of electoral situation moving forward? Or, and you don't even have to just focus on that, but we'll start with electoral <laughs> politics because I think I know where you're going to go from there, and then we can kind of go into, okay, well, what should people be doing? But for people who are thinking, man, Joe Biden won, we've got to really double down and, and, and reform this Democratic Party and make it into the party that we want it to be. we got to stop these Joe Bidens. we got to get more AOCs and Bernies elected. What is your response to people who are thinking that right now?
1: um i've said this since south carolina and i want you're not going to be able to do working class politics without working class organizations um i the first time i encountered this honestly was piven and i'm reading a ton of francis fox piven stuff right now but her vote book uh why americans still don't vote and i think it's like an edit she did like uh, why americans don't vote and then why they still don't vote because by 2000 they yeah. still weren't voting um, show that like the only times working class people in whose interest it is to do these redistributive politics or progressive politics or whatever you want to call it, um, the only time they've entered the electorate in big enough numbers to really control things was one during the first like, sort of Jacksonian democracy when you had these, the the Democratic Party was a new thing. It did patronage. It connected like these urban sort of um ethnic enclaves to graft jobs and then won their loyalty to get them out and voting. This is where that first round was sort of like, um, make the vote safer where it's like, Hey, let's not be stuffing ballot boxes came from is because machines like Tammany Hall did (laughs) stuff ballots. They was like vote early, vote often. Right. You know, the joke. Yep. Um, the only other time that successfully tons of working class people came into the electorate was with the big union drives in the thirties. Um, well, 20s and 30s. And we've basically been coasting on those fumes since. And I think we finally reached the point where it's starting to sputter. Like Democrats could count on winning. I mean, they were basically the ruling party, right? Since FDR. Like Republicans would come in, but the House was like a Democratic thing. You just took that for granted because as the most representative body in American government, the Democrats were going to win it. <laughs> they had the ground game. It's an right.
0: important point for 52 years prior to 1994 and Gingrich coming in. I, I don't yeah. think that we realize that in today's world where things flip back and forth so often that the Democrats controlled the House for over 50 years until Newt Gingrich and company came in with a contract for America in 1994.
1: And I think you would agree as someone who comes from another union household, that was the get out the vote operations from a lot of unions that made up the like muscle of that ability. Um, And we're seeing that wear down. Like we've got what, what is it 6% union density in the private sector now and it's not exactly turning around and you see how that plays out. So in Nevada where um, Bernie ran on working class politics, even though the union leadership of those unions in Las, uh, Las Vegas, didn't come out to support him kind of were hesitant the membership mobilized and they got out the vote and he won like dramatically in las vegas then you go to south carolina i mean the dixies never had a strong union movement the vote is mostly mobilized by democratic machines that probably are like antebellum old in some cases and it, it goes for the conservative candidate because people vote with their like social blocks right like they don't this idea that's like a free marketplace of ideas and nobody's influenced by anything or wrong. Like, well, that's the same thing with like COVID, right? Like I early in the thing looked at it and went, eh, is this a big deal? But people around Park or RMC were like, no, we're following it a lot more closely. And I trusted you guys. You know, if I'm listening to Fox news, who do I trust? Bill, well, I'm old Bill O'Reilly's gone. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So electorally, I think we we can try these sort of like left populist approaches, which is kind of what we started with RMC, Rise. Right? like, well, people hold these positions. Just go to them and try to mobilize them. You can do that. And Bernie definitely, I hate to use terms like change the conversation because you can't measure the conversation. But um, Bernie definitely set up sort of expectations that weren't there before he started running on them, but he couldn't win. And we're not going to have the actual organization to win until we have working class organizations that can pursue those politics in an organized way. So like, even though people liked his policies in 2020, there weren't organizations to mobilize them into action. Um, And without those individuals sitting alone in their houses, don't feel the sort of like effectiveness or the interest to come out and do stuff. You know what I mean?
0: hundred percent. So what do you think those organizations look like today? We've had RMC, even Mm -hmm. internally we're constantly thinking about, What does it look like to restructure? What does it look like? You know, what kind of campaigns make the most sense to engage in? Mm -hmm. Uh, What do you think those organizations look like moving forward, understanding that the organizations might look radically different if you live in, say, rural Indiana compared to if you live in Oakland, California, compared to if you live in Louisiana?
1: Right, right. Um, What we're working on currently is attempts at forming tenant unions. Um, But so let me roll back it makes sense for it to be institutions that materially sort of like address the needs of everyday people. So whether that's trade unions or tenant unions, those are the ones that make sense in our area. I've never lived in Louisiana, so I don't know if there's some other vector that makes sense. In a like a, a farming area, maybe it's like a farm workers union or, or campaign or something. But um, we I definitely see it that way, where you need to actually be organizing these institutions that can actually pursue politics with work, like the vast majority of people would just saying working class makes it sound like this sort of like, it's just another interest in society, like the vast majority of people get a paycheck, like, and their interests are XYZ, the, you know, rent is squeezing up the paycheck squeezing down, they're trying to get you at the place more often and we're, our politics are trying to address that, not as some special interest, but that's because that's the vast condition of everyone around us. But in order to be able to mobilize people who've been very checked out of politics, who know this game isn't played for them, there got to be in organizations that can pursue those interests. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like it's not just an individual calculus. You got to be part of like something that is dedicated to that—a group of people that learn to trust each other and work together because they're winning stuff. Um, so I, I don't see us having any other choice than trying to rebuild some kind of whether it's tenant unions or labor unions, and then. Well, yeah, the the sort of like, what do you do with sort of left populism and elections? I do think it still makes sense to run candidates that sort of try to raise that bar that say like, no, actually, the way everything is is totally wrong because, um, I mean, I'm just going to reference Piven again. Like she kind of talks about that kind of shaky chicken and egg with FDR and the union movement. Is it that there was a union movement that saw FDR was an ally and so mobilized to do something? Or was it that, fdr goes out and says hey workers should have unions hey working class conditions are terrible you should have a better deal and then people go yeah you know what we do deserve a better deal i think those are kind of balancing off of each other and we'll have to do both but that's uh, a good go point it's,
0: no it's a great point it's a great point because for as much as people people who aren't on the inside might not know this but the major uh climate marches that took place in 2012, 2013, and 2014 were largely dictated from the top down from the Obama administration who was trying to get some reforms passed in Congress and was trying to like, you know, throw some seeds down to the to the NGOs and say, hey, it would really help if there were hundreds of thousands of people in the street while we were trying to pass these reforms. So yeah. it, does, it does help. And that's, you know, rare praise that Obama will receive on this program. But it is true that I think even he understood, uh, sort of had a sophisticated view of how that would work. Um, mm-hmm. Even Hillary Clinton. I mean, it's interesting. I'm, I'm digressing a little bit, but there was a moment in the 2015-2016 primary campaign where Black Lives Matter activists, people might remember this, but they found Hillary Clinton backstage and they sort of just started you know, berating her about this and that and they wanted her to speak to this issue. And she had to explain to them how politics works. She was like, oh, no what do you want exactly and what do you want me to do about it? Like it it was just this thing where they didn't actually even come to the backstage with demands for her. Mm -hmm. Um, Thinking about what that looks like under Biden, I think will be tricky. Um, What will they propose that the left should back? In other words, one of the things that I think the left didn't do a good job of during the Obama years was that we were so small that when Obamacare was proposed the left said, oh, well, fuck Obamacare. It's not a public... It doesn't even have a public option, and it's not universal (laughs) health care. But the left didn't have the base of people to push Obama to do a better health care program. So now you had a situation where it wasn't just the right that was shitting all over Obamacare, but it was the left who was equally shitting all over Obamacare without the kind of nuance to understand that it did benefit some people while hurting some others. Um, And, you know, and in the meantime, what did we allow? We allowed... The Republicans to sort of just attack this reform um, that you know nobody was going to defend because it wasn't it didn't make enough difference in people's lives for them to get up and defend it. And I, I worry that we're going to be in a similar situation with Biden where we would assume that the legislation he's going to propose is going to be a watered down version of what we really need, something that say Bernie would propose, which is maybe even a watered down <laughs> version of what we really need. Um, but that it will take some sophistication. On behalf of organizers and movements to say, okay, on the one hand, this isn't good enough. On the other hand, if we fight for it and if we try and push it, maybe we can get some improvements, but it's better to have it than to not have anything. Um, I don't know if that's the kind of like dealing with elect the electoral process over the next couple of years. For us, in other words, there's not going to be an election in the next two years. So the question electorally is kind of how do I put this? You could be working on a local housing rights campaign that, so we'll use our example. Actually, let's just use a part because this is more real world. So RMC is working on say this housing rights campaign in Michigan city. The, the Biden administration will take office. They'll propose certain kinds of legislation that we would like to see reforms that would actually trickle down and make a difference for us, knowing that, you know, we need federal mm-hmm. intervention what do you think the sort of proper position is for people who do, who are a part of a social group or a political group? I mean, is it that, what would that engagement look like as this goes on? In other words, that'll be what most people are paying attention to. As the next six months unfold, it'll start with Biden's cabinet. And then the moment he takes office, it'll be the hundred day agenda. And most of what we'll hear from people will be like, okay, this is the thing that's happening right now. We still have to build a base Um, but we'll have that happening at the same time. So I
1: think for people who actually still have large organizations who could actually squeeze a Joe Biden, like they have some really complicated calculus to play. What I think is encouraging is, I mean, you and I might think the union movement needs to be a little more aggressive than it is, but I mean, it also knows it doesn't really have a big, it's got the only hand to play in the Democratic deck since it provides a lot of its get out the vote machinery, but um, those groups that have those cards will need to play them to try to push them a little harder. Maybe they will, maybe they won't. For us, on the sort of left, if you mean like the DSA, these other sort of like avowedly left-wing or socialist groups, like we can do what we can do, but the reality is we just found out we don't have a very big card to play. And that's not, that's not an insult to us. I mean, we're coming back from the left not existing. When I was a kid, there was no such thing. Um, but I think we have to really be honest that if we want to bring a hammer to this, you know, competition, we're going to have to actually go make it. Um, so I don't think that means, I think what I could see this being negatively is us taking up this position where we're out in the streets protesting with meaningless numbers against policies that are actually moderately not awful, which doesn't attract anybody who, I mean, A, how many Americans are really following like a policy debate? B, even if they did, are you in the position to mobilize them into some kind of like action so disruptive that it actually changes the agenda at the national level? Yep. No. Um, So what we can do is we can do these performative protests where let's say Biden wants to put in a public option and the 100 or so people in Northwest Indiana who've been active in like the Medicare for All campaign go out and we protest Frank Mervan's office for a couple weekends that isn't enough to to like actually push him. It's enough to take up all of our time, but it's not enough to actually change anything. So I think we have to be honest that at the national level, any amount of pretending that we're going to shape the agenda as like leftists is really self-deceiving. And what isn't happening is nobody's going out and making new institutions of the working class that could actually, instead of bringing a hundred people to Frank Mervan's office one time, could bring a 1,000 people to Frank Mervan's office for a week straight. You know, if no, that's the tactic. It, um, if if we continue to act like we're a, na- a serious national challenge right now, we will miss the opportunity to actually put together a serious national challenge. And it, it feels better to yell at the bad guys, but you're not going to win, um, that's is what per- I would say.
0: This is precisely what I wanted you to get to, because this also segues nice into one of those projects that does exist that mm-hmm. both of us have... I think felt positive about, but are also you know apprehensively positive about, like we are probably almost anything. Anything, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, let's be clear. Let's let's put them all on the table. It's true that that might be the case for anything, but DSA is one of those projects. Democratic Socialists mm-hmm. of America. There is a DSA chapter forming here in Northwest Indiana. Why don't you tell us about why? that makes sense to you and to us, you know, collectively as a group in our RMC, which has decided to take this on as well. But, you know, why does it make sense to you? Why do you think it makes sense organizationally and how could this lead us to maybe something that would be an alternative to say the democratic party as a formation of people that could do party politics without it being, uh, exactly a party.
1: Right. So like towards the middle of this year, as we're kind of doing the Bernie postmortem, one of the first things I think you and I both asked is like, who's left standing? So Bernie said, everybody needs to organize, you know, we have to be more organized to get things done. What organization is gonna persist past Bernie Sanders campaign? And it became really apparent that the DSA is growing, it's still getting bigger, and it's actually getting, it's actually doing things as an organization. It's not a paper membership organization, as we saw most of their endorsed candidates won. Um, So that was one of the things is we went, well, this is the organization left standing. And then looking around like Northwest Indiana, we saw there's isolated little groups, but they're not acting in unison. So even when um, we might share a common project like this COVID, uh, you know, a better COVID response, let's say from the state of Indiana, we're not coordinated in pressuring local governments around. And then even more so, even if we had been, we're nested in these, uh, authority struck. You know, we're nested in the state of Indiana, which is in the United States, that we can't impact. So even if Michigan City had announced some sort of like lockdown, and Porter County didn't, to your point, everybody driving over for a weekend at the lake is gonna, you know, you can't do this checkerboard response. So seeing that the the organization at the national level that's still standing was the DSA, and seeing that so many of the problems we faced. Um, come down from like the state and national level, it, sent, it seemed apparent to me that we needed to actually be part of something that works from the top to the bottom. And seeing the sort of like layer, the uh, not layer, but you know, group of people that got active around Bernie's politics, like I thought it was really important. I think it's really important that for us to have an organization where we actually come together and strategically figure out what to do instead of just doing what it seems that we could be doing in our little corners of the air, of, of the region. So um, I thought it made the most sense to like, in order us for, in order for us to be as strategic as possible, as small as we are, to make the biggest impact we can, to pull together into that organization, which offers the best infrastructure, that offers the best sort of trainings and stuff, that gives us the best plug in with this national sort of debate and national struggles, and all work together rather than working in our little separate um, silos as sort of, you know, smaller than the sum of our parts. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and I thought that becomes even more important because as we've seen, the left right now, even with our best actions and our best intentions, can't really win much. Like the the DSA candidates who won are still ones and twos. They're not setting the agenda anywhere they won. It's mostly a like a blue state phenomenon, not entirely, but mostly. Um, and if we're gonna like make differences here, if we're gonna contend for these sort of like redder corners of the state, it's time to like really start to act strategically and, um, much more seriously together. I saw this is the best way to actually bring everybody together into one organization and start actually talking to each other about how we can, I like Jonathan Matthew Smucker's, uh, quote, we must conspire to take the helm. (laughs) Like in Indiana, it's so apparent that nobody else is going to, and this goes to your democratic party point is like though Biden won the Democratic Party just like openly collapsed in Indiana. I mean, LaPorte County that used to be like a one of the blue strongholds just had the Republicans absolutely sweep the county government. I mean, it was just a wash. So, it's apparent to me that like unless left activists and or left activists become left organizers in like a real strategic disciplined united way, we're just going to watch this thing continue to lurch to the right because the Dems are, I mean, fumbling the football isn't even a good enough term. Right. They, like, stumbled down the bleachers and broke their leg. <laughs> they didn't even get to the field. Yeah. Um, so it just becomes, to me, like like a, a real vital importance to start building the kind of infrastructure we need. And I saw this as the best way to do it.
0: What do you think are some of the major challenges for a group like DSA moving forward? So we could start both locally um, and, and we'll round out, I know that we're, we're reaching the end of our time, but I wanted you to talk about the challenges that a DSA group would be facing, say, locally in our regional formation. And then what are some of the bigger challenges you see for a DSA moving forward?
1: So I think we face the same challenges locally that you do nationally. And um, I was recently on a, a training that Maria Svart, the national director, put together where she's She doesn't put it any less clearly than this, is that DSA's membership is itself still mostly that college-educated, professional layer of society. And as such, where most people who would call themselves leftists are in society is in that sort of like professional, institutional setting. Um, So it's pretty hard to be organizers of sort of working class people if you're not actually around working class people. It's a lot easier to do activism. and I think that's going to be our biggest challenge is finding a way to move this out of sort of performative politics and into things that could actually organize people's lives. Because it's 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 a lot harder. You don't have the the natural opportunity to do it. So like if I work at um, I don't know, what's a good example, like a an accounting firm, there's not probably gonna be like an accountants union. It's kind of like maybe, but that's not that's not usually what we think of. So finding a way to take where we are in society. And I say, we as like, you know, a collective group and figure out how to actually do things that might be impactful without it being just sort of like a a cosplay. I think that's going to be the hardest thing to do, but until we do, we, we know how much power we have now, you know? Yeah. Um, And I, I think that's the same nationally locally. I think we might still have a little bit of trouble with just the word socialism But the thing is union doesn't have that, that like negative connotation. So I don't think if you're like trying to organize a tenant union, people are going to like ask you like, well, what's your political ideology? Because again, for the most part, conversations about political ideology are held by all the people. Those debates and conversations and anger and everything, that's all done by the people who are posting on Twitter, writing newspaper articles. The average person doesn't doesn't have these like highly developed sort of like knee-jerk responses because they're not in the discourse, you know, right. as right. we would call it.
0: No, and it's a great point because uh, I know Jane McLeavy just brought up a similar point with Georgia where she was asked, you know, what do you make of the 71% of Georgian uh, Georgians who said that they supported a government-run healthcare program, you know, and she said, yeah. well, it's great, number one, we should organize on those numbers, but number two, what would those numbers have looked like if they would have set a socialist healthcare program, maybe 25 or 30%. Who knows? I mean, maybe it would have been higher, but the point is, is like, you know, we are going to face that challenge of how much do you want to employ that term and how much do you just want to talk about the principles and concepts upon which it's based, because that might be very well where you can get people to come in.
1: Sure. And I I think the only thing it really should be is the name of the organization. Like it's sort of like, going around pitching ideologies to people doesn't really describe what their life is going to be like. Right. And isn't this like the, uh, I remember hearing Zizek joking about the Soviet union or like, you know, an old communist joke where it's like, uh, you know, the Soviet union took synthesized all the best parts of history where it's like from uh, peasant agriculture, it took like outright slavery. And then like from socialism, it took the name, you know, <laughs> um, uh, we don't, we don't need so much like, a. Uh, an ideology or like a sticker to put on stuff, right? Like you actually have to hear what people are dealing with their actual material conditions and propose solutions that they can take seriously and strategies and tactics that they can take seriously. Um, Which is, I guess my, my biggest word for like this whole organization is or left organization in general is like to take it very seriously and to take the way people are going to hear it very seriously to not ever just be like, well, I'm a socialist. So that means, let's hold red flags. It's like, no, what is a person actually hearing from you? You know, is it hearing uh, another sticker on the side of, you know, hope, change, socialism, or is it actually going, well, you're dealing with this. And here's how we can actually do something about it. You know what I mean? And then actually being there for the fight, not just showing up with the literature and then away. Yeah. You know.
0: No, I think that's the best way we could have ended a, very lucid summary of what the hell is happening in this country what needs to be done (laughs) where we've been over the last several months so i appreciate it brother thank you for coming on oh thanks for having me it was a good time absolutely man we'll have you on more we'll talk more (laughs) good (laughs) thanks for watching park media i'm your host today vince emanueli and we'll talk to you soon hey thank you for watching and listening if you think this program is worth a pack of cigarettes or a cheeseburger, you could become a Patreon for as little as three dollars a month. The link is available at our website, parkmedia.org. That's p-a-r-c-media.org. Make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel below. Also, you could find us on Instagram at parkmedia, Facebook at politics art roots culture, and you could find me on Twitter at Vince Emanuele.